Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. Just want to let you know that you can catch us here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station right at the same time. But if you do miss an episode, make sure to catch us online. You can see all of our past episodes at mncatholic.org slash podcast, or you can find us on your favorite podcast app. And we are approaching almost 100 episodes, so there's plenty to get caught up on. Make sure to subscribe, leave us your comments, and make sure to give us a five-star rating. That will help others find us more easily. In today's episode, we have a great discussion on religious liberty and the upcoming Feast of Christ the King, not only the celebration of this feast, but diving into what Christ's kingship means for issues of religious liberty. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about helping friends, family, and maybe even yourself deal with any post-election disappointments. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In today's Bricklayer segment, we look into what you can do to build bridges with newly elected officials, even if you didn't vote for them. And listeners, if you have an idea for a future bricklayer segment, or maybe you just have a question about faith and politics, make sure to send those our way. Send me an email. Send it to show at mncatholic.org, or you can just leave us a comment on the podcast episode or connect with with us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for Minnesota Catholic Conference. Okay, let's jump into today's topics. We are joined on the line by Dan Balserak. Dan is the Director of Religious Liberty and Assistant General Counsel at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. He formerly worked at the Federal Department of Health and Human Services and also served in the General Counsel's Office at the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Dan, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very good to be here. Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you uh, jumped into the uh, religious liberty issue and why you think it's a compelling uh, topic that Catholics need to be thinking about today. Well, when I started at the Archdiocese of Washington, most of my work was in the sort of day-to-day matters that your your average civil lawyer does, contracts, real estate, and whatnot. But as my time there went on, the Archdiocese started to endure more and more attacks on its religious liberty, and it became a subject of intense interest, not just not just for me personally, but for the Church sort of nationally. So I got to work on that some more at HHS and have sort of found a home doing this kind of work, and I'm very glad to be with the Bishops' Conference, which has always done some truly excellent uh, work, both legally and in the sort of pastoral area on religious liberty. Religious liberty used to be uh, considered a cornerstone and cherished American value right out of a Norman Rockwell painting. Everyone remembers the famous uh, painting of uh, freedom of religion by him. Significant pieces of legislation like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed overwhelmingly in the early 1990s, but the landscape has changed. And now often it seems that religious liberty is put in scare quotes in uh, media stories, uh, that it's seen as a cover for discrimination. How did, how did we get here? What, what has changed in the dynamic, uh, in the culture, and the perception around relig- what religious liberty is? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to look back on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It passed with only three votes against. It was 297 to three, I believe, in the House, something close to that. And I think what we have seen 
is a growing uh, momentum in a, a movement of secularization. More and more Americans describe themselves as unaffiliated or atheist, and those the public policy convictions that, that tend to attach to to people who, who do not ascribe to any particular faith, I think are increasingly manifested in the laws and regulations of our country. Um, and that also plays out in the, the social sector, where we see people of faith uh, increasingly marginalized for attempting to live out their faith in the public square. Dan, let's define our terms. When we talk about religious liberty, what exactly is it that we mean? I think a lot of even Catholics say, well, I go to Mass. You know, the Church can operate on its own. Uh, we can have processions in the streets. Uh, what's really the problem here? What, what is religious liberty? Is it Church autonomy? What, can we, how do we define our terms? Well, I think there is an attempt in, in some segments of society to confine religious liberty to the mere right to believe whatever you want to believe. But that's not what religious liberty is, and it's not what the founders envisioned religious liberty to be. The, the free exercise clause is exactly that. It's the free exercise of religion, not mere freedom to worship. So when we talk about religious liberty, where the rubber hits the road is in the liberty to to be religious, to act religious in all aspects of your life, whether you're in church, inside the four walls of the church, whether you're at work, or whether you're at the ballot box. It seemed at one point that modern-day opponents of religious liberty or those who sought to restrict it wanted to make a distinction between um, free exercise of religion and freedom to worship. They wanted to call it, well, you'll be free to worship. With COVID-19, I think especially here in Minnesota, we felt acutely that even the freedom of worship was being threatened. Uh, what's Say a little bit more about that. I think you, you hinted at it already that uh, it's really about not even worship. It's Well, it's religion is really sort of what you believe internally. Is that kind of the direction we're heading on this? Yeah, it's a good point that the COVID uh, pandemic has presented some challenges to the, the freedom to worship that really, in recent memory, have not been a matter of concern, have not been an area where the Church was really worried about any sort of restrictions. Of course, the pandemic is, if not unique, a, a, a very unusual situation, and the, the legal dynamics, at least, in uh, with regard to government restrictions on freedom to worship are difficult hitting on this idea that once, you know, we thought that it seemed that freedom of worship was the way in which opponents of the free ex- the broad free exercise of religion wanted to cabin religion, but now it seems it's the case that uh, even the freedom to worship is under question and, and uh, under attack as well. What, what we would like to achieve, I think, is at least to get out of the pandemic without uh, truly bad precedent in place about the government's ability to restrict what goes on inside the four walls of a church. You know, in the interim, certainly we would hope that any government restrictions on freedom to worship would at least be equal to the restrictions placed on similarly situated entities. You know, we have situations like in Nevada, where casinos were 
uh, freer to operate, freer to to have customers uh, inside than than churches were, and that is certainly a cause for some concern. Again, you know, the pandemic is a pretty grave threat. Many bishops, if not most, put into place safety measures before they were even mandated by their local governments. So the church is certainly cognizant of the need to safeguard public health. Indeed, that's that's a matter of faith for us. We you know, we regard healthcare as religious exercise. So certainly, the the concern showed by by bishops around the country for the health of their faithful is also a manifestation of our care for our faithful and our neighbors. We're speaking with Dan Balzerak. He is the Director of Religious Liberty and Assistant General Counsel at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Dan, that raises an important point that religious liberty is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's really the right to exercise your faith in a way that uh, isn't unduly burdened. But when there is a compelling governmental interest, like, for example, public health, there can be limits placed on the legitimate exercise of religion. Say more about that. Sure. So we're actually beginning to touch on some of the issues that will be discussed at oral argument in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia later this morning. Uh, At the federal level, there's the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which imposes the the test that you alluded to, uh, which is that the government may not substantially burden religious exercise unless there's a compelling governmental interest to do so and it does so in a manner that is least restrictive of religious exercise. But there's also the First Amendment, which under Employment Division v. Smith held that restrictions on religious exercise are valid so long as they are neutral with regard to religion and generally applicable. And one of the questions before the court this morning will be revisit Smith and, and restore for uh, at, at the constitutional level the test that RIFRA sets out. Right now, RIFRA only applies to the federal government. States are subject to Smith. And the court is being asked to, to consider whether to, uh, to limit or, or overrule Smith. And that would be a, a momentous uh, development in religious liberty jurisprudence, a, a true sea change in the way uh, things work. Dan, I want to return to that important point in a moment about uh, the way in which the court has the opportunity to reinvigorate the First Amendment's uh, free exercise of religion. But say a little bit about the case that's occasioning that investigation on in, on First Amendment jurisprudence, this case, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. This is being heard today. It's We're recording this November 4th, the day after the election. It's perhaps a little bit lost, but has a, an opportunity, as you've mentioned, to be a very significant moment for First Amendment free exercise of religion and civil rights for people of faith. So what's the, what's the case about that's occasioning this deeper look into First Amendment jurisprudence? Sure. So on the facts of the case, uh, it's uh, it regards Catholic Social Services, which is the Archdiocese of Philadelphia's social service arm, and their uh, participation in the city's foster care network, uh, specifically their role in certifying foster care parents uh, f- to be eligible to to care for children who who do not have a, a mother or father who's, who are capable of caring for them, at least. And the city uh, found out from a reporter about uh, Catholic Social Services' beliefs about marriage. 
consistent with Catholic teaching on on marriage. Uh, CSS uh, does not, cannot certify and thereby endorse uh, same-sex couples, just as it does not certify and endorse unmarried heterosexual couples uh, to be foster care parents. This is not a matter of CSS discriminating against children. Uh, CSS serves all children without regard to any characteristic. Rather, when CSS is being asked by the city to send a message to endorse something that church teaching contradicts, or that contradicts church teaching, I should say, that's when CSS has you know has a problem. That's where they, they cannot go further. So the city canceled CSS's contract, and now the CSS and two foster care parents, Sharon L. Fulton and Tony Lynn Birch Sims, I believe is her name, um, have challenged the city's action there. And so, really, who suffers from this is is, is the kids, right? It seems that the city is uh, getting rid of a really important foster care provider simply because it's taking a, a dogmatic, pardon the pun, uh, approach to anti-discrimination laws. But I think the, to play devil's advocate, though, one might say, well, if they're going to be a government contractor, then they should play by the government's non-discrimination rules. What's the, what's the response to that? Right. So this is a, a dispute that has been brewing for a while. We, we've anticipated that these sorts of uh, interests would collide at some point. Uh, on the one hand, you have recent Supreme Court precedent in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza, which hold very clearly that the government may not discriminate in the distribution of funds against a religious entity because of its religious status or identity. But the court left open the question of whether a government may discriminate against religious entities because they will do religious things with the funds. And here, that that question is set against the, the backdrop of sexual orientation discrimination. And that's that is sort of the the preeminent area in which religious liberty rights are colliding with uh, developments in federal and uh, and state law. So, if Catholic social services was the only social service provider in the city of Philadelphia, I can imagine how the case might be a bit more sympathetic. But CSS is one of, I believe, 29 social service providers that participate in certifying foster care parents. The reality is social service providers specialize in assisting parents of different backgrounds. There are some, a number of social service providers in Philadelphia that are certified and endorsed by the Human Rights Campaign. And when a child in Philadelphia is being placed with a family, numerous foster care parents from numerous different social service providers are submitted to the city, and the city chooses the parent to place the child with. So there, there is just not the occasion for the sort of uh, 
exclusion from the system of same-sex couples that that uh, people on the other side of this case seem to be afraid of. Dan, I think people would be surprised to find out that uh, this case is an opportunity to envision or to revisit the Supreme Court's gutting of First Amendment protections on the free exercise of religion that was created in the Employment Division versus Smith case in which the late great Justice Scalia ruled that laws of general applicability uh, that burden the free exercise of religion need only have a rational basis and they get the lowest level of scrutiny. The case is an opportunity to revisit that and say maybe we need to provide strict scrutiny uh, to all laws that uh, burden the exercise of religion. What do you think are the odds of the court revisiting that bigger question and uh, heightening the protections for religion under the First Amendment? It's always perilous to try to predict what the Supreme Court will do. I would not hold out hope for an outright overruling of Smith. The Chief Justice is well known for his dis- disposition to be incrementalist. That sort of bold ruling seems less likely than than likely, and the Solicitor General has also weighed in to to argue that the court need not revisit Smith to find in favor of CSS in this case. Uh, that said, I would not be surprised if the court takes some action to limit the scope of Smith or broaden the sort of exemptions, uh, which is not a wholly accurate term, but broaden the the ways to get around Smith if you're a, a religious believer. One of the, the matters uh, that the court will, will hear is whether the city of Philadelphia targeted CSS for its beliefs on marriage. And if the court... Issues a ruling setting a uh, a lower standard for such a finding of targeting, then that weakens Smith while leaving Smith technically, you know, as as good law. Dan, where are some of the other fronts uh, in the religious liberty battle? You mentioned the uh, conflicts that arise between religious liberty and anti-discrimination laws, particularly in the LGBT context, we'll call it. Where are some of the other big fronts or issues on uh, the religious liberty that are on your radar? Well, it's hard to believe that we're still talking about this. Uh, but as, uh, as we watch election results come in today, and the prospect of a Biden presidency looks more likely. You know, Biden has pledged to uh, to reinstate the contraceptive mandate, uh, a, a case that feels like it's been going on forever. Because it has. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I I honestly don't know if we'll ever see the end of it. But that is, you know, it remains a a matter of great concern uh, to the bishops and, and to the committee for religious liberty and. Again, talking about the election, it looks like the Republicans might hold the Senate, but that that will not serve as a uh, a bulwark against the reinstatement of the contraceptive mandate, which is done at the regulatory level. So we are keenly watching both the the prospects of a reinstated contraceptive mandate and other potential uh, regulatory actions, uh, often out of. Uh, out of HHS, which is uh, you know, the, the intersection of religious liberty and healthcare, has really been 
uh, and, and I expect will remain a uh, a primary sort of area of concern for us. Dan, the U.S. bishops have identified the Feast of Christ the King, which is, of course, the last Sunday in the liturgical year, as an opportunity to play, pray and reflect on religious liberty. Why, why the intersection with that feast, and what are the bishops proposing as action items this year? The Feast of Christ the King, uh, I think, has a special significance for American Catholics sort of today in, in, this, in this particular environment. Uh, it was the feast was instituted by the encyclical Quas Primus by uh, Pope Pius XI in 1925, and he wrote the encyclical in response to a, a growing tide of secularization and nationalism in the wake of World War II. Uh, and his hope was that a reminder to the faithful of Christ's kingship would serve as a, a call. To, to defend that kingship and to evangelize those who have uh, ascribed, who had ascribed to this new secularism and new nationalism. What are some action steps that the bishops are proposing that Catholics take on November 22nd as we observe the feast? The bishops have provided uh, a number of uh, resources to, to parishes to assist in, in pastors discussing the nature of the, the Feast of Christ the King with the faithful. Um, I think what individual Catholics can do is make known to their their representatives uh, their, their particular interest in ensuring that religious liberty is protected. And there's interesting overlap between the language that Pope Pius XI used in describing the nature of Christ's kingship and the the relationship between the individual and the state and between the the church and the state, uh, overlap between that and uh, language used by James Madison in uh, 1785, I believe it was. Madison had an outsized influence in the shape of the nation and and in particular the, the nation's position with regard to religious liberty. And in his uh, memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments, um, he actually refers to God as governor of the universe, and the universal sovereign, um, which has sort of eerie parallels to our concept of Christ as king. Indeed. Dan, where can people go to find more about Christ the King and the observance and the religious liberty materials that the USCCB provides? If you go to uh, the USCCB website, that would be usccb.org slash committees slash religious hyphen liberty. Uh, that's uh, the landing page for the Religious Liberty Committee. And under our initiatives tab, there is a, a link to our Christ the King materials. Wonderful. Dan Balzerak, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today and for all your good work and advocacy on behalf of religious freedom. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment.
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our mailbag. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, so as election results have come in, one of our listeners wrote to us about the disappointment and even anger that he's seen among friends and some family whose candidates didn't win. And he says it's not just in the presidential election either. So he just wants to know what suggestions do we have that he could then share with friends and family on how to turn that disappointment into positive action, even when their candidate lost? Well, it's important to remember that faithful citizenship uh, is a 365-day-a-year activity. It's not simply voting and uh, simply voting in an election and then saying, oh, well, my duties are done. Uh, it's uh, the way in which we participate in the social life of our communities and build it up. We make the kingdom of God manifest. Uh, we make the kingship of Christ, as we just discussed, manifest in our society. And so it's, a, it's the ongoing work of citizenship and engagement, and it doesn't have to end with voting. Uh, we want to encourage all Catholics across Minnesota to join us for Catholics at the Capitol 2021. You'll want to save the date today. Mark your calendars for Thursday, April 15th. 2021, whatever the COVID-19 dynamic is going to be, there's going to be something happening at the Capitol that day. We even have the front lawn reserved for legislative engagement as well. So we're going to start the day, at least it's planned right now, at the Cathedral with some great and outstanding speakers. Archbishop Jose Gomez from Los Angeles will be joining us, as will Uju Ekeocha, the great pro-life activist as well. So it's going to be a fantastic day to be formed, engaged, and strengthened, and then an opportunity to reach out to your legislators and connect with them about important issues. Our last two Catholics at the Capitol events in 2017 and 2019 each drew well over 1,000 people and were really dynamic, incredible events. We encourage you to mark your calendars for Thursday, April 15th, even if you didn't vote for your elected officials at the State House or the State Senate. It's an important opportunity to build relationships with them and communicate to them about important issues impacting life and dignity. Again, mark your calendars for Thursday, April 15th, 2021, and stay tuned at catholicsatthecapital.org for details on how to register and further logistics for the day, as well as more information about our great lineup of speakers. Wonderful. And clearly that's one way that people can start engaging with their elected leaders. But as this is the bridge builder, we always like to give people a way to start laying the bricks for building that bridge. What else do you have in this week's bricklayer segment? In the coming weeks, your newly elected officials will be preparing to either return to office or for some, this might be their first time in office. They really rely on you and your perspective for what they should focus on during their time at the legislature. Whether or not you voted for them, this is where the rubber meets the road as the true bridge builder. As election results are certified and your officials take office, you'll be able to contact them through their offices. Uh, The best way to do so is go to the Minnesota Catholic Conference Action Center, and you'll find a directory of your elected officials and can send them a message. We encourage you to register for the Catholic Advocacy Network as the one stop and the best place for you to impact uh, legislation at the Capitol and make your voice heard. Just go to mncatholic.org slash action center and click on the directory to find out who represents you, but then certainly uh, join the Minnesota Catholic Conference Action Center and the Catholic Advocacy Network for messages that you can send with a click of the mouse to your elected officials about key questions. 
Maybe you're a parent whose child has flourished in a Catholic school or a farmer who understands the intricate balance of caring for creation and making a living. Or maybe you're a teenager who has to run errands for your family because your undocumented parents cannot legally drive. Whether or not you agree with the stances your elected officials have taken in the past or have stated they will take in the future, your voice can still make a difference. Most importantly, when you contact your elected officials, let them know you are praying for them. Again, go to mncatholic.org slash action center, click on the directory, and join the Catholic Advocacy Network. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics can join the Bridge Builder program and build bridges between faith and public life. Let us know what you think of today's episode. Leave us a comment on the podcast episode, connect with us on social media, or email us at show at mncatholic.org. And be sure to send us your ideas for our mailbag and bricklayer segments. How can Catholics build the bridges between faith and public life? Remember to catch up on our almost 100-episode library on our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast. Some really great stuff there. Thanks for tuning in to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.